Chuck really did do a good job, so uh, thank you, Chuck. Um, well, good morning. It's hard to believe that a few hours have passed, and this floor uh, yesterday had thousands of eggs uh, all rolling around, and kids, uh, one kid, he, he ran from that side over there, and I was watching, and he stopped about the free throw line and just slid right into the middle and grabbed up a whole bunch of eggs, and then he went on. And uh, our daughter, Shiloh, took an egg and just ate it the whole time, plastic and all. But uh, thank you to everybody who uh, participated in that. And also, uh, for those who were our stuffers on Tuesday, who uh, stuffed those eggs, um, we're appreciated. We appreciate that. Well, today we're concluding our series, Life's Healing Choices. And this series has just been amazing, I think, for our church. It's really helped us to uh, grow uh, as individuals. And I'm really looking forward to what God's going to do with this uh, with uh, the days and weeks ahead as we grow closer to him and to one another. Now, this morning, I want to begin with this statement, and it's this. Pain is a part of life. Pain is a part of life. You just can't get around it. Pain is going to happen to your life and you can't get around it. There is no such thing as a pain-free world. Because the reality is, we live in a broken world. In fact, even when you start following Jesus, and people will tell me this all the time, they'll say, man, I started going to church, and I started connecting with God, and I thought things were just going to get all better, like everything. All the debt gets gone, you know, my marriage gets better. Everything happens overnight, and it doesn't. Pain is still there. And as long as you live on planet Earth, you're going to experience pain. Now, once we get to heaven, we're promised in the Bible that there's no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sickness. But while you're here on Earth, you will experience pain. That's a great opening, huh? Yeah. So the question becomes... What does God say about our pain? What does he say about our pain? Well, I think there's three things that he says. He says, if you give me your pain, I'll do three things. The first thing is, I will see it, uh, I will use it for your benefit. I will use it for your benefit. The second thing he says, if you give me your pain, I will use it for my purpose. And finally, if you give me your pain, I will use it to help other people. I'll use it for you to help other people. Now, folks, throughout this series and in the book, it said over and over again that God never wastes a hurt. God never wastes a hurt. Now, we do. We waste hurt all the time. We get hurt once, and we know what we should do, but we just keep on doing it over and over again, setting ourselves up to get hurt one more time. And this leads to what I think is kind of the central point of this whole teaching that we're going to be looking at today, and it's this. Don't waste your pain. That's your first fill-in, if you want to put it in there. Don't waste your pain. Pain is going to come your way. It's inevitable. There's no way that you're going to be able to resist it. But you don't have to waste it. You can release it to God... And allow him to use it. 
Now this morning we're going to go back to one of Jesus' teachings that we've already looked at before. And it is uh, one of his most powerful teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, which basically was just a teaching that he gave on a mountaintop. And while he was up there, he said some powerful words called the Beatitudes. And one of these Beatitudes says this, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. God wants you to be a peacemaker. He doesn't want you to just be a keeper of peace. He wants you to be a peacemaker. Because when you make peace, you bring peace to other people's lives. But the problem is this. You can't bring peace to anyone else's life until you have peace in your own life. That's what recovery from our hurts, habits, and hang-ups is all about. How do we find God's peace in our life? And once you find your peace in your heart, then you can share it with other folks. But how do we recover from our hurts, habits, and hang-ups? How do you know when you're really over a big pain in your life? When you're over a rejection, when you're over a betrayal, when you're over some kind of abuse that's happened in your life? How do you know when you're over a pain that happened in your childhood, but it seems to come up all the time, that hurt in your marriage? How do you know when your past really is in your past and you're totally recovered? You want to know how? It's when you are able to begin to help people in the exact area that you've been hurt. Whatever that area that you've been hurt in, when you can help other people in that, you know you're recovered. It's when you're not wasting your hurt. When you start helping people through that same hurt, then all of a sudden you feel at peace. When you start sharing some big hurt in your life, then you see healing and benefit, not only in your own life, but in the life of other people. I was talking with a guy this week who was going through a real difficult time. And there was a painful place in my past that I had told very few people before. But I felt the Holy Spirit kind of prompt me to share it. And as I shared that with him, all of a sudden he could say, Wow, whatever the hurt is that I'm going through, at least I'm not doing it by myself. Someone else has experienced this. And all of a sudden then, within 24 hours, the pain that he had in his relationship, he was able to get through it and forgive. And that's not because of Chris Bunch. It's because Chris Bunch just offered the hurt and said, God, can you do something with it? You see, the reality is, most of us like this piece of paper, oh, that was good. most of us like this piece of paper, we want to throw it down, put some dirt on it, and hide the hurt. But when you hide the hurt, you don't help yourself, and you certainly don't help other people. And that's why you have to share it. That's the whole point to this eighth step that we're looking at. The key word is sharing. It's a sharing choice. Well, it's going to come up on the board, and let's read it together uh, on this wonderful, beautiful day outside. Let's read it together. That was a joke. It's 35 degrees outside, all right? All right, here we go. I choose. Here we go. One, two, three. I choose to yield myself to God to be used to bring the good news to others by both my example and my words. And that's the choice. You know, folks, to help somebody, you don't have to have it all together. 
You don't have to have everything together to help somebody out. In fact, no one has it all together. No one in this place has it all together. The person beside you doesn't have it all together. There is no such thing as a perfect person. Because the reality is, God only uses broken people. Because that's all he has to work with. And the reality is, people connect with people more in their brokenness than they do when they feel like they've got it all figured out and all together. Doesn't that always feel weird when you're around somebody and they act like their life is perfect and everything's great? It doesn't encourage you. It discourages you. You think, oh man, they've got it all together and I don't have anything together. There's no way. It doesn't help you. For example, if I stood up here and I said, well, these are all the things that I'm really good at. And I just started listing every single one of all this stuff that I'm good at. Some of you would be like, la-di-da-da, giddy for you, Chrissy boy, you know. You're good, I'm not, so what, let's go home, right? You see, sharing your strengths doesn't help people. It discourages people. It's when you share your weaknesses that it encourages someone else. In fact, this guy that I was talking with this week, when I shared this horrible thing from my past, you could almost look at him like, wow, you really are kind of screwed up, you know? And all of a sudden he starts smiling. I don't know what it was, but he just felt better about it. I mean, when people say, I'm neat, but you're so messy, how does that make you feel? Bad. I'm organized. You're disorganized. I'm always on time. You're never on time. Why can't you be more like me? You see, you never learn from the strengths of others. You learn from their weaknesses. That's why you don't learn from strengths. You learn from weaknesses. On the other hand, if you remember last week, if you were here, I stood and shared a painful part of my life. I call it my 40 days and 40 nights that extended into an entire year where I went through a horrible depression, had to be medicated, went through some counseling. And when I shared that with you guys, that wasn't like a big strength of Chris Bunch. It was a weakness. But when I did, all of a sudden, some of you are like, wow, man, you know, I'm going through something right now. And if Chris was able to get through that depressive period, maybe, just maybe, I can get through my thing. Maybe if I just hang on and hold on tight to God and I give him another try, just maybe, maybe I'll make it through. I mean, look at what happened to him. He's stunning now. Folks, it's about your weaknesses, okay? It's not about your strengths. And that's the key to this choice. Now, a great example of this in the Bible is a guy by the name of Paul. Paul wrote over half of the New Testament. He's considered the greatest Christian outside of Jesus himself. And in the Bible, Paul talks about a time in his life in which he was so discouraged that he was ready to kick the bucket. He was ready to just give up on life. Walk away. He was ready to crawl into a corner and die. That's how down Paul was. But look at what he says. He says this. I pray that God our Father, 
And the Lord Jesus Christ will be kind to you and will bless you with peace. The Father is merciful, is a merciful God who always gives us comfort. In other words, when you're down, when you're going through a tough time, he comforts us in our trouble so that we can share the same comfort with others in trouble. That's this whole sharing state. He comforts us when we're in trouble so that we can share that same comfort with others in trouble. We share in the terrible sufferings of Christ, but also in the wonderful comfort he gives. If you would, just somewhere on your teaching outline, you might write down these words. They'll come up on the uh, screen. My greatest ministry will flow out of my pain. It's true. Your greatest ministry, the greatest impact that you'll ever have on other people's lives is not in all the things that you do so well, but it's where you found your greatest pain. Not out of your strengths, not out of your talents, not out of that stuff, but out of a painful experience in your life. For example, who can better talk to someone about bankruptcy and the pain of what it means to go through that than someone who's gone through bankruptcy? When they can say, hey, I've been there, I've done that, I know what you're feeling. Who can better help somebody who's experiencing a heartbreak in a relationship, or maybe they're going through a divorce than someone who's gone through that before. And they can say, man, I know what it's like to feel that lonely. I know what that feels like. Who can better help someone who's been abused sexually or verbally or physically in some way than someone who's actually been abused? Who can help someone help someone who's experiencing the whole kind of grief process because they've lost someone to death than someone who's gone through the death of a loved one. I'm telling you, folks, don't waste your pain. Some of you are so ashamed of it that you simply just keep on digging and burying it deeper. Let it out. Not only do you feel better, but God can use that pain then to touch the lives of other people. If you hold it in and you hide it and you hold it back, it doesn't do good to anyone. But if you're honest with God and yourself and honest with another person, God can use the very thing that you hate in your life and he can use it to help others. So what can you share to help other people? What can you share? Well, the Bible teaches us that the first thing that you can share is this. I must share with other people how pain got my attention. I must share with other people how pain got my attention. The Bible says this, sometimes it takes a painful situation to make us change our ways. Anybody agree with that verse? Yeah? Would anybody be able to tell a story about that? Yeah. I mean, we could spend all day talking about how a painful situation made us change our ways. You see, folks, we don't change when we see the light. We change when we feel the heat. Right? You change when your pain exceeds the fear of change. Because that's what change is. We're fearful of change. 
Now, why is it that we wait until things get so bad in our life before we decide to change? To be honest, I don't know. If I did, I'd write a book and, you know, we'd make a lot of money and go on. But this is what I know. Pain motivates us. Over the past five years, I've had dozens of married men come up to me and they'll say something like this. Can you help me to understand my wife? Again, if I could do that, I'd write a book. But I'll say, well, tell me a little bit more. Tell me about your marriage right now. What's going on with that? And then they'll say, well, she walked out and she left me. And I'm thinking, well, why didn't you come to me a month ago, six months ago, a year ago, two years ago? Why did you wait until she finally said, I'm fed up, it's done, I'm over, I'm walking out of here. Why did you wait until that point to say, I need to understand my wife. Folks, why is it we wait till the end of something before we decide to change, until it gets bad? Now, the reality is, for many of us, we have to wait until it hits rock bottom and we're finally laid out on the floor and the only thing we can do is look up to God. We don't have any other choice. You can't look to the right. You can't look to the left. You just look up and say, God, I'm messed up. I need your help. And it's such a stupid thing to do. Because he said, I don't want to wait until you're flat out before you seek me. I want to do it long before that. Again, the number one way that God uses pain in your life is to get your attention. Pain is a megaphone. It's God kind of yelling out to you, Hello? Are you listening? Do you think I made you to be that little self-centered person and you can ignore me and ignore me forever? Hello, are you listening? Anybody there? You see, God whispers pleasure in our life. But he shouts pain. Pain is the warning light. Pain is the bells going up. Pain is the wake-up call. Pain is God's way of saying, things are out of whack. You've got to return to me. I'm the only one that can give you any hope. This is not the way to go. There's a story in the Bible about a guy by the name of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet. He was a pastor, a person who spoke on behalf of God. And one day, he had a very difficult job. He had to go to the king of Israel a guy by the name of Ahab, and he had to tell him that God has decided because of of your unfaithfulness and the unfaithfulness of Israel that there is going to be no rain upon the land for years. And after he tells them, Elijah's like, man, i got to get out of here. God, help me, you know. This king's going to be after me. And so God says, I'm going to take you to this nice little place. It's kind of like a little vacation spot, a bubbling brook called Carrot. It was like a little resort spa. Early in the morning, supernaturally, the birds would fly over and they would drop food out just for Elijah. The water was clean and pure. He could go and get it. There was beautiful scenery all around him. I mean, you talk about Sandals Resort or, you know, any other kind of resort, it doesn't compare. Elijah was comfortable, 
and relax, just, you know, enjoying it, having a little daiquiri, taking it easy. And then the scripture, at the end of this relaxing experience, says this. Sometime later, the brook dried up. Have you ever had the brook dry up in your life before? When you lost a job, you lost a marriage or a relationship, when you're depending on the support of a friend or a family member and you think they'll come through and then at the end they just don't. And when it happens, what it feels like is exactly what Elijah experienced. The brook just dries up. And this happens to all of us throughout life many times. When this happened to Elijah and the brook dries up, he gets mad at God. And he says, God, I thought you loved me. Here you were providing food for me and all of my needs and the beautiful scenery. I was relaxed and I'm having a good old time. And all of a sudden, the brook dries up and everything changes. Don't you love me, God? And God says, of course I love you, Elijah. I don't want you to stay at the brook anymore, though. As long as you're going to stay there, you're not going to go anywhere. I didn't create you simply to sit at the brook and rest for the rest of your life. There are things to do, places to go, goals to accomplish, missions to fulfill. I don't want you staying at the brook your entire life. And you weren't going to move until I dried up the brook. Folks, sometimes God dries up the brook in your life because he doesn't want you to be at the same place that you were a year ago. He wants to move you in a better place. And sometimes, if he has to, he will even use pain to get your attention. You see, here's the point. When you talk about pain with other people, you're always going to have a willing ear. Particularly if you talk about a painful situation that you have experience in. But for God to use that pain for your benefit, for His purposes, for helping other people, you have to be authentic. You've got to be honest. You can't hide things. You can't sugarcoat it. You can't fake it. You can't pretend about it. You have to be real and honest about exactly what's happened in your life. So what do you share? I share how pain got my attention. Here's the second thing that you share. I share how God can bring good out of bad. I share how God can bring good out of bad. All of us have examples of our lives that we could talk about in which God took something that was very bad in our life and he brought goodness out of it. One of God's greatest promises is in Romans 8.28. I love the verse, but it's also one of the most misunderstood verses there is in the Bible. Let's look at it word by word. God's promise says this. Let's read it together. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. 
First, what does this really say? Well, it doesn't say that everything will always work out in your life. It's not true. Life doesn't work that way. Things don't always work out the way that you want them to work out. Also, it doesn't promise a happy ending. There's not always a Cinderella ending to everything that goes on in our life. It's not true. There are a lot of unhappy endings. I'm sure many of you could uh, share that. In fact, we shouldn't expect everything to be a happy ending on this side of heaven. Once we get to heaven, happy endings all the time. So what does this first promise to us about recovery and growth? First of all, the first two words say, we know. In other words, we're not guessing, we're not hoping, we're not wishing, we're not desiring. It's saying we are confident, we know. We're certain. We can be absolutely certain. We know for certainty we can take a stake and put it in the ground because we can claim it for ourselves. What do we know? We know God causes. Well, what does that mean? It means that you're not an accident. There is no such thing as random choice. There is no such thing as bad luck. There is no such thing as, oh, maybe better next time. There is a grand design behind every single thing that you experience in your life, and it's the design by God himself. Our lives are not a result of fate. Our lives are not a result of chance. Our lives are not a result of some accident. You're not an accident. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. Even before you were born, he knew exactly what he was going to do with you. There's a grand design. Now, every single one of us makes mistakes. All the time. This week. But God never makes a mistake. And everything that happens in our life, folks, is based on choices, not chances. Choices that God made or you made or somebody else made for you, but it's a choice, it's not a chance. It's not rolling the dice and giving it a chance. We know for certain that God is a grand designer who causes all things, everything. Now, what's included in all these things? My mistakes? Yep. All of your sins? Yeah. The sins that other people commit towards you? Yeah. Are all the circumstances throughout the history of the world a part of that? Yes. Are all the bad decisions that people make and that you make? Yes. All this is included in all the things. And God says, I fit all of those things into a plan. There's no part that doesn't fit. I fit it all together. So it says, we know that God causes all things. Now, if we just stopped right there on that verse, and we stopped just at that point, at everything, God would be the author of evil. He would. Nothing that is in this world God has ever created that is evil. So what's it saying? It says this. Well, look at the rest of the verse. We know that God causes all things to work together for what? 
good. Now notice that the verse does not say that all things are good. Because the reality is, there are a lot of things in this world that are not good. They're evil. When little children are stolen from their parents and they're placed into sex trafficking in other countries, it's happening right now. I listened to something this week. There's more people in slavery now than there was actually during the whole slave period in our country. People are being bought. That's evil. When world leaders take all the money from the people and they put it in Swiss bank accounts while their people starve to death, that's evil. When people betray each other, that's evil. When they torture each other, that's evil. There's a lot of evil in this world. So not all things are good in the world. Cancer is bad. When a person is molested, it's horrible. There's a lot of bad things in this world. It says that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. You know, there are a lot of things that don't taste very good by themselves. But when you mix them all together and you put them together, all of a sudden it's not too bad. For example, last week I told you that I believe my wife makes the best chocolate chip cookies in the world. But there are multiple ingredients that go into that. Now you would have thought after I shared that last week that I would have got like a big old tray. It didn't happen. But I'm just going to keep on doing this chocolate chip example until we see it come. Now, she takes all the ingredients, and I love it because she, like, puts them all in there, and she's working them together. I'm, like, working with her, you know, or I'm watching with her, you know, and she's getting it all together, and I love it. And all these ingredients come together. Now, if I got a little bit too anxious and I was like, oh, I want this ingredient, Crisco. It'd be bitter, it'd be horrible. I mean, I don't go automatically go to the you know kitchen refrigerator when she's putting it all together and go in and get two raw eggs and put them in a cup and go, whoa, that no. It tastes bad. I don't take flour and pull it out and put it in my mouth and man, it'd be dry. It'd be horrible. I don't take a, a spoonful of salt or even vanilla and go, mmm, no, it tastes horrible. I don't even take sugar by itself, a cup or two, and kind of eat it. No, because it would taste bad. But when Jen does her magic and she starts working it all together, man, you don't even have to cook that thing, you know? Just give me the cookie dough. I'll just eat it by the glob all by myself. I don't even need it cooked. You see, folks, when it all works together, even the bitter parts of our lives, God can actually make all of that to taste good, but not by themselves. There are things in your life that you have experienced that are flat out bitter. And they left a bad taste in your mouth. They weren't good, they were bad. But God says, I'm bigger than all of that, and I can take all of those things together and work them together for the good. I can take those bitter elements and I will work them for good. Can God really bring good out of bad? Absolutely. 
Think about the crucifixion that we're going to celebrate in just a couple of weeks. They took Jesus. They beat him to death. They took a stick. They knocked him over the head. They spit on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. The scripture tells us that they flogged him, which literally means when they whipped him, they had these pieces of lead and rock that would go into the skin, and he was skinned alive. And you do all of these things, and do you think, could God work something good out of that? Absolutely. The salvation of the entire world is based on one of the most gruesome acts ever done to any man on the earth. And friends, this verse, this promise, though, you need to realize is not for everyone. Look at what it says. We know that God causes everything to work together for good for those who want, who love him. This isn't a promise for everyone. It's only for those who are giving the pieces of their life back to God and saying, God, you put them together. Because if you're not following Christ, if you're not loving God, if you're not giving all of the pieces of your life to him, all those things are not going to work out together for good. In fact, they'll probably work out together for bad. So the choice is up to you. Do you desire God more than you desire yourself? If you do, God says, I can work good even out of bad. Do you desire God more than you do yourself? But if you remain selfish and you kind of go on doing things your own way because you want to be your own God, God, even though he wants to help you and he wants to do good things in your life, he just can't. But if you turn everything over to him, everything that you have, he can even take the bad that is in your life or that has been in your life and he can work it together for the good. There's a story in the Bible about a guy by the name of Joseph. And Joseph was number 11 out of 12 brothers. Not a real good place to be, you know, in a big family. But what was good was his father, Jacob, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, saw Joseph as the favorite. But you know what? If you're a parent, even if you like one of your kids better than another, and I know some of you do, But even if you do, you don't show it. Because if you do, it's going to make it harder on that particular kid. And that's what happened to Joseph. He became daddy's boy. And all the other 11 got pretty ticked at him. Now because Joseph was his favorite, Jacob actually gave him this wonderful brand new coat. He treated him better than the rest of the boys. And he gave him preferential treatment. All the time, you know, first one to eat, last one to have to do chores, whatever. And Joseph's brothers hated him because of all the good treatment he was receiving from their dad. So one day they decided to plot against him. And they took Joseph and they faked his death and then they sold him into slavery to the Egyptians. They sold their brother in slavery because they hated him that much. Eventually, Joseph is bought by a slave master by the name of Potiphar. And he comes into his house and Joseph does a great job and everything's going well. Until one day, Potiphar's wife kind of gets the hots for Joseph. 
He looks and he's, she's like, wow, I want him. And so she comes and she says, come on, Joseph, go ahead and sleep with me. It's okay. And he says, I'm loving God. I'm not going to do that. I have a, I'm a person of integrity. I'm not going to disobey God. I'm not going to go against my master. I'm not going to sleep with you. And he runs away. But in the middle of him running away, she grabs a hold of his coat and pulls it back. And then she comes up with this lie to everyone that Joseph raped her. Joseph is taken, thrown into prison, and he's ready to live the rest of his life rotting in jail. Folks, the first 40 years of his life was downhill. I mean, it was bad news. He finds himself all alone in prison, no family, no friends, all by himself, only God, not knowing whether he would live or die. And I just wonder, if that happened to you, would you think that God loved you? Would you think that God knew what he was doing? Would you think that God had a purpose and a plan for your life? I mean, everything that possibly could have gone wrong in Joseph's life did in the first 40 years. It's the first half of his life. And yet God had him exactly where he wanted him. You see, in prison, Joseph meets a baker. He used to be the baker of Pharaoh who was the president, who was the head honcho of all of Egypt. And through a series of events, Joseph gets on his good side and actually becomes the second in command in all of Egypt. He becomes the vice president of Egypt. And through his leadership, he saves the entire Middle East from starvation because he takes some food back and he saves it for a period of time when there would be drought, because God told him. And Joseph becomes the hero when he started out as a zero. One day, his brothers, though, are dying of starvation, and they come to Egypt because Egypt is the only place where there's food. And they come and they get some grain, because it's the only way they're going to save their lives. And as they get ready to purchase the grain, they look up and they go, Whoa! The guy distributing the food is Joseph. The one who they had thrown to the wolves. And they start freaking out like, man, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're dead. We're goners. We're through. He's going to kill us right now. But because of Joseph's relationship with God, when he saw him, he did not have resentment. He did not have bitterness. He did not have revenge. The scripture tells us he began to weep and cry and walked out of the room because he was so overwhelmed by the love that he had for his brothers. And he comes back into the room and the scripture says this, you intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good. Friends, I know that there are people in your life who have harmed you, who have hurt you. They meant to. They intended to. They intentionally hurt you, spiritually, physically, emotionally, sexually, mentally, whatever. They've been your parents. They've been your partners. They've been friends. They've been family. They've been neighbors, coworkers, bosses. And people throughout your life have intended to hurt you. But even... Though they meant it for good, if you give that to God, 
or a minute for bad. If you give that to God, he can mix it together and create it for good. God really can take bad in your life and turn it into good. Last thing, what God wants you to share. God wants you to share with others how Jesus gives you hope. He wants you to share with others how Jesus has given you hope. Everybody is hungry for hope. Wherever you walk this week, there will be people around you and every single one of them that you come into contact with, whether it's at the grocery store, at a restaurant, in a park, in a neighborhood, at work, wherever, they're hungry for hope. Because people are hiding some hurts. Everybody this week that you encounter will have a hidden pain in their life. And everyone needs kind of massive doses of hope. And when you share hope, there is a willing audience right there. Today, so many people feel hopeless. In fact, when you look at Muncie and Delaware County, and the unemployment rate is 11.7%, and people are feeling hopeless. And so it's your job and my job as a church to go through and give hope. I hear this hopelessness almost every single week. My life is out of control. I can't seem to change. Nothing seems to work. Life has kicked me to the curb, and I feel trapped. I feel trapped in this marriage. I feel trapped in this job. I feel trapped in the unemployment that I'm experiencing right now. I feel trapped in this addiction. I feel trapped in this hopeless health issue that I'm going through. And yet, everybody needs hope, folks, if we're going to cope. You know, part of the vision statement of the jar, and I'd encourage you this week, don't throw your program away. Take it and read the vision statement. But part of the vision statement of the jar is this. Together, we want to link arms of hope and share that story. We desire to empower the poor, embrace the outcast, and encourage the broken. You know what the jar needs to be? A hope dispensary. When people are going through life and they have no hope, the jar needs to be a place where we're giving hope to people. He wants to, us to be hope pushers. we got enough drug pushers around this area. We need some hope pushers. People that are going to push hope. He wants you to push hope wherever you can. Because the core message of Christ is hope. Look at this final verse. It says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. You see, the whole focus on this verse is witnessing. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. That means you and me. Now, most people get it all wrong when it comes to witnessing. They have the thought that it's Jehovah's Witness. Coming door to door. Could we talk? Oh, no! We can talk, right? Yeah, we have this horrible image. And we think... If I'm going to be a witness, I've got to know everything about Jesus, 
I got to know how to explain the cross. I got to know 14 scriptures. I got to know doctrine. I need to know theology. Folks, you don't need to know a single Bible verse to be a witness. Because you know what the difference is, right, between a witness and an attorney? An attorney, it's his job to press the case, to show evidence, to make a decision. That's the job of an attorney. But in the scriptures, there is not a single place that Jesus ever says, will you be my attorney? It's just not there. It's not your job to convince people about Christ. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. You're not to be an attorney, but you're called. You're commanded. If you see Christ as a person that you are living your life for, it's commanded by him to be a witness. So what do witnesses do? I've been a witness before. You go to a stand, and you sit there. And they say, what did you see? And you say, I saw the blue car hit the red car. Okay, are you an expert on cars? No. Do you have anything else to this case that you could say? No. Thank you very much. You're on your way. And you go. You simply say what you've experienced, what you have seen. And between now and Easter, God, I guarantee, is going to put some people in your life who are unbelievers, who are going through life hopeless. It's going to be your family, friends, neighbors, whoever. They're all around you. And he wants you, when they're going through their pain, to say, you know what? I know what pain does. Pain gets my attention. It got my attention to connect with God more. It got my attention to know that God's the only person that's going to help me through this situation. I learned that God is going to hang out with me in my pain and not walk away. And then you can say, and let me tell you about a bad thing that happened in my life and how God turned it into good. That's what it means to be a witness. What's God done in your life? Today, when you walked in, each one of you received a little packet like this. If you can pull that out. And inside, there's a card that says, please join us for our Easter Day celebration, April 14th, or April 4th. Now, between now and Easter, I'd like you to share this with somebody. Maybe there's a kid in your neighborhood that no one else likes. Jesus is asking you, deal with it. And invite someone. Encourage them. Let them know that they're not alone. People are going through all kinds of pain. And just in case you ate something that was in that bag already, you're going to have a painful week. God knows. No, I'm joking. But whatever it is, share with someone else and be a witness this week. You don't have to have it all together. You just have to share what God has done in your life. You might use the bag as an opportunity or there's some extra ones if you already ate everything in it. Here's the last question. Who will you tell? Who will you tell? Let's stand for closing prayer.
God, thank you so much for your amazing love that you give to us. Thank you so much for the hope that you give to us when we feel so hopeless. And God, I know that there are some people in this place who have been feeling hopeless for not just a few hours or days or weeks, but for months. They just felt this hopelessness. And I pray right now through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would fill them with your hope. Let them know that they're not alone, that you are with them. And God, I pray that as each of us experience your hope, help us not to hide it and keep it to ourselves. Help us not even to take our pain and hide it, but help us to release it to you and share it with others. Give each person here the power to share your hope with someone this week who feels hopeless. Use them to encourage somebody else this week. And as we do that, God, may we see a new, fresh thing that you are doing in our lives, in the lives of the people that we tell, and in the life of the church that you call the jar. It's for your honor and glory that we pray. Amen. Have a great week. Know that you're loved in this place. If you'd like prayer for anything, come on up.